If you are new or visiting with us, I might help you to know that this is the eighth in an eight-part series on the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome written in the first century. Also, if you're visiting or you're new with us, you might be thinking, hey, is this one of those churches that does like Youth Sunday where they let one of the teenagers preach? (laughs) That's cute. (laughs) And I know I look like I'm 18 and my voice will crack from time to time, but... If, it's, uh, any, uh, if it makes you feel any better, I actually do have some extensive preaching practice these days. It's usually with a three-year-old audience in my home. We, I preach before they go to bed every night. And don't let this alarm you, but we've just found it's the best way to put them to sleep. <laughs> Hoping for better things in this case. All right, pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the joy of this morning, the joy of gathering in the name of Jesus, and we simply put ourselves before you to receive from you all that you have for us. And so I pray that you would unite our hearts one to another and to you in the love of your son Jesus, that you would stir us up by your Holy Spirit for mission, to have a life that is wide open to you, that we would see fruit and good works flow from us, that the name of Jesus may be glorified. We pray for this in his name. Amen. I was 16 and on a walk with my mom, which in itself is remarkable, but we were talking and I was telling her about my feelings, about my life and its trajectory. As most 16-year-olds are wont to do, I was wondering what will become of my life? What will I do? Will it have meaning? Will it have purpose? And of course, I wanted it to, but I wasn't so sure that my current trajectory trajectory would have meaning. And I was explaining this to her, and a couple weeks later, I went on a missions trip with my youth group in the high school uh, youth group that I went to. We went to Las Vegas. We did. We really did. There's a YWAM base there, Youth with a Mission, and we went, spent a week praying with them, uh, going out in the streets, praying with people, preaching the gospel. It's amazing. And in that week, it came clear to me in a way that it hadn't yet up to that point what it means to live a life wide open to God. And I decided I wanted that. And I went back and spent the last two years of high school with a couple other Christian friends around me. We, we started a Christian club and we just made it our goal and our mission to be salt and light in our public school. And it was awesome. And yeah, we made mistakes, but we had the sense of being on mission. There was a purpose for us. Now, a decade later or more, and inundated with the reality of of day in and day out life and the responsibilities that I now have, I look at myself sometimes and wonder, has that, that passion and that life wide open to God, has it faded a little bit? And I wouldn't be surprised if there are many of you here who are wondering the same thing. Maybe you look back and you remember, yeah, that summer camp experience or that weekend retreat, or yeah, for me it was a missions trip too, when I was in high school. And I had that sense and an understanding of I'm excited to be a Christian. I get some, in some way that God is, he's it. He's the center of all things and I, I wanna live my life for him. And yet now, you realize, oh, having a childlike faith, it's not so easy when you're not a child anymore. Or having youthful zeal is not as easy when you're not a youth anymore. And you're wondering, has it faded for me too? But there are others of you here who you've never felt that passion. You've never felt like, yeah, I'm on fire for Jesus or whatever. I've heard those words. I don't exactly know what it means. That's okay. It might be because you've never fully given your life to Jesus. 
Uh, it might be that you've been a Christian your whole life, you've just never known what that means to be a passionate Christian. All right, so that's where you are today. Others of you, you're living in that passionate place still. You're, you're there, you're, you're on fire for the Lord. Wherever you are, in any of those three camps, yeah, I was there, but it's faded, or no, I've never really experienced that before, or hey, still there. It doesn't matter, because my goal and my hope is the same, that wherever you are, wherever we are, that by the end of this morning, we would be renewed in our energy and our, our desire to make that our goal and our ambition, that our life would be wide open to God, that our lives would matter. And it's based on this foundational belief that you were called to salvation in Jesus Christ for a reason. Yes, for heaven. And let's not forget, that's the main reason, that you are called to salvation in Jesus Christ so that you would enjoy God and the fellowship of the saints and the angels forever and sing his praises. Oh, it's glorious. Let's not forget that. But as Anglicans, we love to say both and. We can focus and have our hope set on the future that is yet to come and say, oh, what is yet to come is better. As Paul says, it's more glorious than the present sufferings, what we can even imagine. And yet we can still say, and even while I'm future-oriented, I want my life to matter now. These 60, 70, 80 years that I've got, I want it to count. I want it to matter. And in Jesus Christ, it does. And ultimately, for me, that's what sold me. When I was a teenager, looking at my options, I said, okay, I could live for myself, and in those 70 years of life that I might have, the meager accomplishments that I achieve will perish with me. And it became clear at this moment, or I could live for Jesus, make my life count for Him, and then everything that I do, the small things, the big things, all of it now has an eternal weight. It matters and will continue to matter forever. And as a teenager, the logic seemed simple to me. 70 years or eternity, I choose this. It seems to have more import. And so where we come today is we look at the book of Romans and the end of the letter, we see that Paul is writing and seems like he's just kind of talking about his plans. I'm gonna go here, I'm gonna do this thing. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, blah, blah, blah. But what do we really see is we see in Paul a life that from the moment he meets Jesus, until his death is totally wide open to God. He understands what Peter says in another place, that we have been saved out of darkness into the marvelous light of God so that we can proclaim the greatness and the goodness and the mercy of the one who called us out of darkness into light. Paul gets it. He had a very powerful experience of this mercy because really he's two men, the Paul before he met Jesus and the Paul after he met Jesus. And before he met Jesus, he told, he said, I was a Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, most zealous in my sect. I was advancing beyond my peers in my ambition, in my zeal for God, that it was misguided. And then I met Jesus and it totally changed everything. He was on the road to D Damascus to destroy the church of God. That was his whole mission. And on the road to Damascus, he was met by Jesus, overwhelmed by the light and he said, Lord, who are you? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul's thinking, no, you're dead. You have to be dead. If you're not dead, then I've got it all wrong, and my whole mission in my life right now is completely upside down. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm really alive. Stop persecuting me. And Paul says, okay, you are alive. He met the resurrected Lord Jesus, and it totally shifted his life. And he went from being one who, in the eyes of the world, the greatest enemy of God should have been smushed like a bug, right? He should have been smited. 
And yet God is saying, no, you're actually my chosen instrument to bring my message to the Gentiles. And Paul is overwhelmed by this mercy and it never leaves him all his life. We look here. First verse that was printed in your bulletins is verse 13. It's a benediction, but it's in the middle of the chapter. Benedictions are supposed to come at the end. And when I was studying, what, what is verse 12 has to do with 13? Nothing really. 12 is not printed, but I was looking at it and the only thing that I could see is in verse 12, he mentions the word of hope. And there must have been some way in which while he was communicating this, he hit the word hope and it just launched him off into this benediction because he's overflowing with the joy of salvation. He can't help himself. He says, oh, may you be filled with hope and joy and peace. The joy of salvation be yours. So let's take a look at Paul and his life. And let's learn from him what does it mean to have a life open to God. And we see right away that Well, Paul has his life wide open to God because he has experienced God's life wide open to him. And that's true for us. That's why we gather week after week. We praise the name of Jesus and we come to communion because there we believe Jesus is saying, here is my life. The mercy, the forgiveness of sins, all of the wonderful things that we've been uh, kind of marinating in all summer long in this series on Romans, the joy of the gospel, the joy of life lived in Jesus. It's here for us every time to communion. He's saying, my life is poured out for you. Receive it. Paul's saying, yeah, I have. And what does it do? Puts him on mission. All right, so let's take a look at verse 17. What can we learn about Paul's mission? How can it inform how we do mission? Verse 17, he says, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And this strikes us as a little strange. Wait a minute, aren't Christians supposed to be humble? And if you've read other letters by Paul, if you've read around a little bit, you might notice something. He talks about himself a lot. He makes self-references, and sometimes these self-references are pretty large, grand statements about the authority that he has and what God has called him to do. And if you don't know who Paul is and what is motivating him, you might think he's kind of arrogant, a little puffed up. He comes across as really bold. He even says so a few verses back. He says, I know I've written to you in a bold way. He knows he has power. He knows he has authority. How does this all fit together? Because isn't this also the same one who is the most humble man in his time? Isn't this also the one that says, yeah, I planted Apollos water, but it's God alone who gives the growth. He tells the Corinthians, here's how you are to regard me as a slave, your slave and the slave of Christ Jesus. That's who I am. How is it that we have this admixture of incredible confidence and boldness and yet incredible humility on the other hand? And the key is those first three words of verse 17, in Christ Jesus. He's in Christ Jesus. And his mission and his whole life is no longer for himself. He's not coming in the name of Paul. He is coming in the name of Jesus. That's his motivation. That's his modus operandus. That's how he is doing everything that he does, why he's doing it. It's for the name of Jesus. Uh, We actually see this in Jesus' own life and ministry. He did the same thing. He came to the world as the Savior, and yet he never proclaimed his own name. Isn't that odd? And some people will say to Christians, yeah, see, Jesus didn't even claim himself to be God. Well, he didn't really, like, outrightly point to himself that would say, hey, I'm God. Instead, he came in the name of the Father. He said, my whole mission is to point you to the Father, 
So even Jesus comes not in his own name, and yet we see in Jesus the same mixture of profound boldness and confidence. He goes after the Pharisees. He attacks them with his authority. People say, whoa, here's authority I've never experienced before. And yet with the same humility that washes the feet of the disciples and says, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. I didn't come in my own name. I came in the name of the Father. Paul, who is imitating Jesus, says, I didn't come in my own name. I came in the name of Jesus. And we, who are supposed to imitate Paul, who's imitate Jesus, we do the same thing. We come in the name of Jesus. And so what does this mean for us? It means that for you, in your mission field, where you are planted right now in your neighborhood, in your family, your extended family, in your workplace, in your school, it means you no longer come in your own name. It's not about you anymore. You've done this 180-degree turn around. You've repented of living life for yourself, and you said, you know, there's a greater glory, and I'm living for that. And so I no longer come in my name. I'm no longer here for my agenda. I'm no longer scrambling to scrape up and grab your attention and your recognition to make you notice me. I'm no longer using backhanded and underhanded ways in the workplace to try to get credit for what others have done. I don't have to do that. Because those whose life is wide open to God is because we first drunk our fill of his life that's wide open to us. We have everything that we need in him and we're set free. We don't have to scramble to get the attention of others. We don't have to come in our name anymore. We can come in the name of Jesus and we also can be servants. And so you should be known in your family, your extended family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, you should be known as like the most humble one there. Unless there are other Christians, then you can't have a competition over who's more humble. You should be known who, as the humble one, as the servant-hearted one. They may not even know that you're a Christian, but they will know about you. Yeah, he's the one that's always picking up those menial tasks. Or, yeah, he's the one that's always directing honor and praise to others. He's not actually directing it to himself. Or yeah, she's just really genuine. I know what it is, but when I'm with her, I get a sense of security. I don't get the sense that it's up to me to like compete with her. I actually get the feeling that, yeah, we're on the team together. And your coworkers will notice. Your neighbors will notice. Wow, they, they seem genuinely interested in me. Because it's not about me. It's not about you. We come in the name of Jesus. And that is so contrary to the world that we're sent to be light and salt to. It's so contrary. What's the, what's the way the world operates? What's in it for me? That's how marriages work in the world. That's how work relationships work in the world. That's how friendships work in the world. That's how parent-children relationships work in the world. What, what can you do for me? Ah, oh, you're cute. You make me happy. That's why I love you. And when I get older, you'll take care of me. Well, maybe they will do those things, but this idea of what's in it for me, totally self-centered. We should expect nothing less because apart from Jesus Christ, what else do you have? You have to scramble up for honor. You have to scramble and try to scrape up all the honor and recognition and glory because how else do you know that you're valuable? But for us who are in Christ Jesus, we're set free because we've been told, oh, my life is open to you, Jesus said. I poured out abundantly. That's all the value you need. And even if all the people around you misunderstand you, they don't get it, it's okay. I fill you with my love. It overflows for you. It's unending, never stops. Be set free. And now go live not for yourself, but for others. So we do not come in our own name. We come in the name of Jesus. And it has to be said that this mentality of what's in it for me infiltrates the church. And we come to resurrection on Sunday morning and we think, oh, I love resurrection. It makes me so feel so good about myself. I love singing and the music. 
I love the preaching, except on Youth Sunday. It's great. I feel really fed there and nourished. Well, good. The church is supposed to nourish and feed you. Absolutely. But that attitude, let's reject it. Let's get it out of here because it's not the attitude of Christ and it's not the attitude of Paul. Instead, we should be saying, all right, what can I do to serve? How can I build up resurrection? How can I, in my time, in my money, give and serve and not be asking what's in it for me, but find the joy of what can I do for her and what can I do for you? And of course, this is, the, this is the logic of the kingdom. This is the way it works. Once we start doing that, we find out, wow, that's actually the most fulfilling way I can possibly live. That's actually where I do feel the most valued and known and recognized and honored. And all of those things are good and they're true in Jesus Christ because they come without the, the selfishness and the narcissism and the conceit that's there apart from Jesus. So here we have an opportunity to love one another, to serve one another, to be set free, to come not in our own name, in the name of Jesus. And that's true for us here in church as we bear witness to one another. It's true in our neighborhoods, our families. It's true in our workplaces. Praise God that we can do that. We can be set free. It's so much better. All right, let's keep, let's keep reading. Verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Right? That's his mission, the Gentiles. And here's how he did it. By word and deed by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. It could be a whole sermon series on that verse alone, but let's just stick with word and deed for today. So Paul says, in word and deed. In another place, in Colossians, he instructs them, whatever you do, whether in word and deed, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father, giving thanks to him. And what it basically is saying is, word and deed, sums up every observable thing that you can do. If you do something, it's either something you speak or something you do. Uh, in our confession, we say, forgive us in our thoughts, words, and deed, which is great because God can read our thoughts, but other people can't read our thoughts, but they can hear our words, they can see what we do. So it's a way to sum up and say, your whole life encompassed, reoriented, your life wide open to God means that in word and deed, everything you do will point to Jesus. And you know people like this, don't you? You like to be around them. You feel encouraged and built up. And it's not that they're like super spiritual all the time, necessarily. It's not like, hey, Joe, what would you have for breakfast? Only what Jesus gave me to eat. <laughs> they may not strike us as super spiritual people, but what they do is through their word and their deed, they are continually pointing us back to the joy of salvation the joy of being in the presence of God. Because here's, here's why, in word and deed, we are able to witness to Jesus and to his kingdom. is because Jesus said to his disciples, it's like this, I'm a vine, your branches, if you're connected to me, my life flows through you and you bear fruit. It's natural. It's automatic almost. You don't have to worry and be too concerned about bearing fruit. Just be concerned about remaining connected into me and the fruit will come. The witness that you live will come. You don't have to go away thinking, okay, I gotta start a Bible study in my workplace. If you can do that, that's awesome. But really just start by being connected in Jesus, living in him, and then every word indeed in the workplace, in your neighborhood, will start to more and more reflect Jesus in whom you are abiding. It also must be said that words are really, really important. I know actions speak louder than words, but really words speak pretty loudly too. 
And I know there are those places in Scripture, in James and in 1 John, where they say, let us not love in, in words, let's love in action and truth. And when you look at the context, what he's really saying, what they are really saying is, let's not love with empty words. Let's not say, I love you, and then actually not do anything for you. But they're not saying words don't have value. I think it's actually one of the ways that we reflect the image of God most truthfully is that our words have incredible power. God, who created by the power of his word, right, he spoke and things came to be, we're made in his image. Our words, likewise, have an amazing power. And so let us not, with our words, distract from Christ and do anything that is unbecoming of Christians, anything that, that doesn't mirror and honor Jesus. And yet we do this so easily. With our words, really easy. Start talking about other people, sharing our opinions, our criticisms, and we think we're okay because, well, no, gossip is when you say untrue things about people when they're not there. No. Gossip and slander is anytime you're saying anything dishonoring about a brother or sister. And the Bible sets the bar higher than anything else, anywhere else, any other moral standard. The Bible sets it the highest when it comes to our words. So let's not, let's not have words that reflect away from Christ, but instead that draw people to Christ. And then in the end, these words will eventually become witnessing about Jesus. Because yes, at some point we need to tell people, hey, do, do you know about Jesus? Let me tell you about him. It'll be so much more believable when all of our words up to that point will have the aroma of Christ and that presence and that, that genuineness and that humility that we were speaking of earlier. Words are powerful. Deeds are powerful. And there are many deeds that are powerful, but let's, let's pick one. What we do with our money. What we do with our money is incredibly powerful as a witness to the world. So when we give our money to the church and the work of God, when we give our money to the poor, when we say to money, you don't have a hold on me because I give you away, that is an incredible witness, a powerful witness. And even if other people don't really know a whole lot about what's happening in your life with your money, I tell you what, the spiritual realities that are real, and the Bible tells us they're, they're watching our lives to see like what's true, they notice. And when you give away money, you're actually doing something spiritually powerful that testifies to the power of God. So word and deed, our words, our deeds, but also encompassing all of life. Uh, when I went to China earlier this summer, I, saw, I heard in a conversation an amazing example of what it means when Christians live their life wide open to God in word and deed in everything they do, how it brings other people to Christ. So I went to China because my little brother got married there to a Chinese Christian. And the main privilege of that trip was being with the Chinese Christians, an amazing, wonderful group of people. And I was in conversation with, with another American who'd been in China for several years, and I just asked him, how is it that, that many Chinese come to know the Lord? What's the way for them? And he said, you know, actually, it's not the signs and wonders as much as they're just witnessing the day in, day out love between husbands and wives, Christian husbands and wives. Because in Chinese culture, it is, it's not expected that marriage should be for love. And husbands particularly are not expected to honor and love and cherish their wives. Uh, cheating on your wife is not only fine, it's actually the norm to have many mistresses. That's just normal. They have no concept of being faithful for the sake of our love. And so he said, yeah, uh, a lot of Chinese 
who are not Christians become Christians because they see the love and the honor that husbands and wives have for one another. And I know that in our culture, we, we have had the light of Christ longer in our culture, but at the same time, let's be honest, there's an attack against the family and marriage in our day. And if we resist that temptation for our marriages and those close personal friendships to have that same what's in it for me attitude, if we resist that and we love and honor and we say, hey, I'm here to serve you, people will notice. Extended family will notice. Neighbors will notice. And here too, as in China, people will become Christians. So much more could be said, but we've run out of time. But we come back to the main point that when we want to live a life fully turned to God, fully open to God, we receive from Him our mission. And it's the clear teaching of the Scripture that every one of us, each of you, has a contribution to make in this life for the sake of the mission of Jesus Christ. You have something that God wants for you to do, and it does not matter the size of your gift or the shape of it. What matters more is the heart with which you do it. Do you do it for the love of God, for the joy of having your life wide open to Him because you've received His life wide open for you? And as we do this and as we grow in this more and more as a church, we'll start to see fruit, people coming to the Lord. We'll start to see people, like Paul, some of us, relocating, moving, going different places. Wow. But those of us who don't, we'll see things like unworldly acts of generosity. We'll see things like marriages where husbands and wives are turned to one another. We'll see things like high school students, and I want to say a special word to the high school students, being salt and light in your school because unlike everybody else, you don't make fun of other people. Wow, if you just chose and said this year as a high school student, I'm not going to make fun of anybody else. That alone would be remarkable. But if you add to that befriending the lonely kid, if you add to that acts of service, if you add to that talking about Jesus, because I tell you what, teenagers are more open to hearing about Jesus than adults. You have an awesome window of mission right now. So high school students, talk to your friends about Jesus. Invite them to youth group. The more and more we start doing this, the more and more we will see fruit. Lives lived wide open to God, receiving his joy in his life back for us. And when we do, yeah, it's the God of hope filling us with all joy and peace as we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit who causes us to abound in hope. Amen.